Moncrief on News Talk. Time once again uh, to spend some time with Jonathan DeVorka Butler, who will bring us stories from other parts of the plan. Afternoon, Jonathan. Sean, how are you getting on? Uh, right, Russia we're going to go to first and uh, a very strange story about, well, it's not just a Nazi monkey. There were Nazi goats as well. Yes, uh, this happened in a town called Udmursia. Okay, it's uh, it's in the middle of Russia, a population of about 600,000. Okay, so it's you know, relatively isolated. Big industrial town. And this happened on the 8th of January um, where... Uh, monkeys and goats were photographed performing at a circus, right, at the Admertia Circus, okay? Now, under Russian law, the use of Nazi symbols, Nazi uniforms, and anything related to that is illegal. So naturally enough, when authorities saw pictures of this over the internet, they weren't particularly happy, so they decided to launch an investigation. They went to the circus and said, you know, what's going on here? And the circus pointed them back to the the local representative of the Russian Orthodox Church. So uh, as you can imagine, the, the, the authorities who were, who were probably uh, on a bit of a rampage took a step back because, you know, dealing with the Russian Orthodox Church is probably as intimidating as dealing with Putin in many respects. Mm-hmm. And the church were the ones who actually commissioned this particular circus, would you believe? And it was apparently they who came up with the proposal of you know, using the monkey and the goats uh, dressed in Nazi uniforms uh, with swastikas and the like. And they basically said that they had uh, been given an exemption, not them specifically, but but back in March of 2020, Putin basically gave an exemption that allowed Nazi symbols to go on display as long as they created a negative attitude to Nazi ideology and, and the church and the circus, obviously, as well said, look, what we were doing here was you had ringmasters going around with these animals. The ringmasters were dressed in, in, in Russian uniforms. The Nazis were told to perform tricks. So it's a way of basically, you know, denigrating or humiliating the, uh, well, they're really humiliating the animals, but, you know, but they're through the animals, they're humiliating the Nazis all over again. Um, so this is the excuse that they gave. At, at the moment, uh, the investigation is ongoing, um, but we'll we'll see how it turns out. I, I imagine they might just get nothing more than a slap on the wrist, to be honest. Mm, that's a very uh, and but of course, in that um, the the use of animals in circuses is, is is that's legal in Russia, is it? It is still legal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, there's been no change on that. Right, Canada we're going to go to next and uh, they are considering adding the Proud Boys, who you just heard uh, referred to mm-hmm. in Henry's report there, uh, to the list of terrorist organisations. Is there are, are there chapters of the Proud Boys, if that's what they call them, in Canada? Uh, according to, you know, people who are, who are working um, in that sphere and uh, according to politicians. So, I mean, the whole thing obviously came to light after that whole mess up in the US Capitol about mm. two weeks ago and it, it, Canada obviously with having America on its doorstep reacted and, and it was brought to light basically by uh, the leader of the new Democratic Party a, a Sikh by the name of Jagmeet Singh he's been a politician in Canada for a while relatively well known and he basically say look their founder is Canadian and they operate in Canada right now and and that of course is is a point I mean um, the founder Gavin McGuinness who founded the Proud Boys back in 2016 and was also, incidentally, a co-founder of Vice magazine, as most people probably know. Um, he's Canadian. Uh, and they first came to light, uh, I think, back in 2018 in Canada, 
when a couple of them dressed in 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 their their you know black and yellow shirts and disrupted a protest by um, an indigenous community over over a statue that they were trying to get rid of. So uh, you, you could argue, I suppose, that they have their roots in Canada. I think from the Canadians' point of view, it's probably slightly embarrassing uh, for them. And so, uh, you know, if they're considering putting this designation onto them, um, it's probably a way of distancing them, themselves from the group uh, as much as they can. Mm. Though it, it's, it's not clear how active or not they might be in Canada and really whether their beef is more with uh, the, uh, in the United States rather than in Canada. Yeah, I think so. I, they are active there. Uh, it, it, as I said, I'm not, I'm not sure how much. I mean, so that basically any sort of research that I've done on it, it, it the the designation of this group as a terrorist organization would mean that their assets would be frozen and various different things like that. Now, how much they actually have in Canada is another question, mm. but it might be a way of stopping them from moving assets to Canada as well, right? Basically, they're trying to stop people from in like banks uh, other official organizations from interacting with these guys uh, the uh, levels of uh, extremism far-right extremism white supremacy extremism whatever we want to call it in canada are low but they are on the rise okay and i suppose an indication of that is the fact that in 2019 two other groups uh, were added to uh, this terrorism list, which you know obviously includes ISIS and various other groups as well. One of them was actually Combat 18, so it, it's 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 re- it's relevant and and they mm. are growing. Yeah, uh, but I don't think they're as active as they are in the United States. Uh, no, indeed, but it's an interesting move, especially if it means uh, that they could uh, seize assets. Given that uh, I think uh, I think over the weekend there was a New York Times story saying that uh, I think the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters, which is another uh, mm-hmm. of these groups, uh, they got funding from a government loan scheme. Uh, right. Am- amazingly, uh, right? Uh, the Netherlands. We're going to go to uh, next, and the government has stepped down. Yeah. Uh, Mark Rutte, uh, who people will know, big tall lad with glasses. He's been the prime minister there for mm. 10 years. And, and people who don't follow, follow Dutch politicians might know him because he's quite involved in the, the last part of the Brexit negotiations and that kind of thing. And uh, I think there's a lot of people in Europe who would not like to see him go indefinitely. Right now, he, he as I said, I think this is, was his third term. And they've stepped down, but they're going to hang on in a caretaker capacity until elections uh, come along again in March. They're due to take place there anyway. Now, the question is, of course, why did they step down in the first place? It's all to do with the scandal that dates back to 2012. Um, To cut a long story short, uh, about 26,000 families were wrongly accused of child welfare fraud. Okay, Um, I suppose if I give a quick example, there was one mother who faced demands to pay tax authorities about 50,000 euros. She was clearly not able to do that. And she explained to them, the authorities, that there had been mistakes made. Now, these were like errors around missing signatures and a stamp being put in the wrong place or, you know, a name being put in incorrectly. Like the the, the mistake, there were just simple mistakes that could be explained. But the, 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 the revenue authority there just didn't listen to her. And uh, her rent went into arrears. Then she couldn't pay her energy bills because they stopped her other allowances and benefits. And she ended up losing her child uh, uh, because of it. Um, Now, the tax authorities last year admitted that they had made a lot of mistakes. And they also admitted, and this was the worst part of, I think, from a 
PR point of view, if you like, was that 11,000 of the people that they investigated or the parents that they investigated were subject to scrutiny because they had dual nationality. So if you take the fact that most of these people would have been relatively poor and then you mix the dual nationality side of it together, you kind of get a picture of what sorts of people they were investigating. And it doesn't um, really look good uh, from the government's point of view. So that's uh, why they've stood down and uh, they've fallen on their sword. Right, uh, Uganda, we're going to go to you next. As Jonathan was saying last week, uh, there was a, a presidential election there. Uh, must have any won, unsurprisingly. Uh, they've also become the latest country on that continent to restrict social media. Yeah, so uh, unsurprisingly, as you said, Yuri M- M- Museveni is 35 years or more in in, uh, in the office of the president. Uh, he won again last week. There wasn't too many observers um, at those elections and fraud has been called. Uh he won 58 by, with 56% of the vote, which I suppose is relatively tight. His next nearest rival, Bobby Wine, got 34%, and there was 11 candidates altogether, and they, they got a few percentage as well. Um, so that was unsurprising. Um, I suppose when you look at it, though, um, there's questions around it. And one of the questions is, why was there a media blackout or a social media blackout, I should say, just before the election and just after the election. And it's interesting because you hear about these media, social media blackouts all the time, but I didn't realize how many there actually were. And since 2015, this is according to a company called Surfshark that looks into sort of privacy protection and the like, they say that 15 countries have uh, imposed social media access either before or during elections, uh, as I said, since 2015. So it's interesting because I suppose it shows how important social media is right across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, at the end of the day, it only leads to one conclusion internationally, and that is, you know, there's suspicions of, uh, uh, if not voter fraud, at least a lack of openness. Uh, and finally, Jonathan, why is the Sistine Chapel controversial in Sudan? <laughs> okay, so you know Omar Bashir, uh, they got rid of Omar Bashir, I think it was uh, last year at this stage, or certainly late 2019. Um the government back then that he ran again for a very long time, it would have been strongly Islamist. And uh, the current transitional government is trying to shift the nation away from that and make it a little bit more secular. So one of the controversies that's come about is in the new curriculum. And in a history textbook for teenagers, uh, there is a picture of uh, Michelangelo's creation of Adam, you know, the hand reaching mm. out to the, uh, of the hand of God reaching to, to, to Adam. And this has caused controversy um, amongst some religious leaders in Sudan. Uh, They're basically saying that the book glorifies Western culture uh, in a way that makes it the culture of science and civilization. They're giving it too much prominence. And so there's a few that aren't particularly happy about this, even though it's only appearing in a uh, history book, as was pointed out by the by the man responsible for the curriculum change. Um, so it just goes to show uh, how easily uh, controversies can be called caused in certain parts of the world. Indeed. Jonathan, thanks a million for uh, speaking with us today. Jonathan de Burke Butler there. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. Moncrief on News Talk.